variety of passages that uh, lead us through the trial of Jesus. But uh, so turn there, please. I'll begin with verse 43 in Mark 14. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father, now as we come to your word in this very important moment, we pray that you would help us. I I do pray that we would come to know you better, that we would see more clearly than ever before your your heart, um, your heart towards us. And Father, that that would, in fact, uh, transform us, help us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verse 43. Uh, Just as he, that he there is Jesus, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. Uh, With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas says, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Uh, Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Then verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another, not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? The son of the blessed one, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Then chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowds came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowds to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with this one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, this morning I want to ask this question. And that is, who really is responsible for the death of Jesus? 
That may sound like a bit of an odd question, given what we've just read. It seems like there's plenty of candidates who could be responsible and culpable for the death of Jesus. But it's an important question. In fact, John Stott, who wrote a book called The Cross of Christ, there are probably thousands of books on the cross of Christ. There are probably hundreds of them that are pretty decent. But this one's very good if you're interested. It's called The Cross of Christ. But in chapter 2, the second chapter, he begins with this question. Why did Jesus die followed by this question? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Significant question because I think if we can understand who really is responsible for the death of Jesus, it will cause our faith to increase. And it will cause our love for God to grow. Now, this week I've been in preparing for a discussion I have to have with a, another pastor friend who just called and said he was criticized about from someone in his congregation uh, that he didn't give enough application in his sermons. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell him. <laughs> Here's the application of every sermon. It isn't a list of do's and don'ts, but the target for application of a sermon is this, <clears throat> that your faith in Christ grows and your love for God grows. I don't have to do any more now. I mean, that's the application. That's what you're looking for every Sunday, in fact. Every time you open the Bible, what you should be looking for, yes, there's do's and don'ts and there's things to do and all of that kind of stuff and you need to do them and there's wisdom and blah, 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 blah. But what really you're looking for, what is to take place ultimately is that your faith in Christ will grow. So when he calls you to follow him, you'll go because you trust him. And your love for God will grow so that when he commands you, you understand that the one who commands you loves you and you love him. All right? So that's what's going to happen. That's the application. So let's look at this. Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? I want to start with someone not actually named here, but who's named in another one of the Gospels in the context of the arrest of Jesus and that's Satan. The Bible says in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, that Satan entered Judas. Now, that shouldn't surprise us that Satan has some behind this crucifixion of Jesus. Satan's been against God ever since the evil turn took place in the context of his own heart. You remember even in Genesis chapter 3 that, that Satan comes against the, the crown of God's creation, Adam and Eve, to turn them against God, to scandalize God, to, to dishonor him. And he comes in that context uh, as the deceiver. But even then, in the curse that God puts upon the serpent, puts upon Satan, he does mention this, that he, that is Satan, will bruise his heel. That is, he'll make a strike against the Messiah. And thus we think, we see here, Satan striking, bruising the heel of the Messiah in the crucifixion of Jesus. Even after Jesus is born, we, we think we see Satan behind the scenes. We see him as, as Herod wants to, to kill the baby Jesus. And so he tries to deceive the wise men to get them to tell uh, him where Jesus is. We see uh, Satan, an evil, 
manifested in the great bloodbath that takes place after the birth of Jesus where Herod wants to kill and kills all those young boys with the hope that he's going to kill the Messiah, kill this baby Messiah as well. We see Satan in the wilderness with Jesus tempting him, trying to lure him away so that he'll follow Satan and not go through with this salvation of the sin uh, of the people of God and, and saving the, the sinners. And certainly we see him then as he enters as he enters Judas and Judas goes to betray Jesus. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that Satan, being behind the crucifixion of Jesus, seals his own condemnation? Because you see, in crucifying Jesus, in working and moving to crucify Jesus, everything that Satan had tried to accomplish was destroyed. Sinners were saved. And Satan himself defeated. In fact, the scripture says this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul writes, Now we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before, the, before time began. None of the rulers of this age, that is, even the spiritual rulers of this age, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, Satan, in his evil, played right into the hands of, God. But then there's Judas. Is Judas the very one who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Some have written of Judas with some measure of sympathy, thinking that someone had to crucify Jesus. After all, it was prophesied. He's just a victim of predestination. And there he was. Satan enters him. So how can we hold him responsible? Because we can hold him responsible. In that sense, because he simply followed the dictates of what he knew to be his own heart. And thus, he sinned. But why, you might ask, did Judas betray Jesus? There's theories about this, you know. Some think that Judas was of the party of the zealots who wanted to overthrow the Roman authorities with such a great desire that they, they formed a rebellious group to go and to overthrow Rome. And, 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 and Jesus was the one on whom Judas had pinned his hopes. And in pinning his hopes on Jesus, however, Judas became increasingly disappointed because Jesus didn't seem to have any great desire to politically overthrow Rome and reinstitute um, Jewish rule in Jerusalem and over Israel. And so the theory is that Judas kind of then turns Jesus in in hopes of forcing Jesus' hand. That once he gets arrested, then he'll step up to the plate and then he'll... We don't have any great evidence that that's the case. That's just a theory. What we do have evidence about in the scripture is that Judas was a thief and was greedy. In fact, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the incident in the life of Jesus where this woman, Mary, comes and she takes that very expensive perfume worth tens of thousands of dollars, we would think, a year's wage, and she pours it upon Jesus. And you remember one of the disciples, John says it was Judas, said, this is a waste. We should have sold this and taken the money and fed the poor, helped the poor. And then John tells us parenthetically that Judas was a thief, that he's the one who held the money bag. And you get the impression that John is saying what Judas hoped for was that they would sell this so that the money would go into the money bag and Judas would get his piece. He betrayed Jesus for money, 30 pieces of silver, the price to ransom a common slave. And he took the money, no doubt, out of greed. 
money rather than Jesus. And we think how sick that is, how dastardly that is. Until we think about our own lives and we wonder, if I had been there and a good offer had been made, is it so unlike me to take money rather than Christ? Could I not have been guilty of the very, of the very same thing? Greed is an insidious thing. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters either. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He said, one will rule the other, then can't. And if it's money, if it's greed, if that's what you're after, you won't follow God. You'll sell out God all the time for that which seems to be tangible, seems to be right here, that seems to be secure. And aren't we all susceptible to such sin? There was Caiaphas, the high priest. Um, Jesus goes to Caiaphas. He's sent there, the high priest. And the high priest begins to, to challenge Jesus. Uh, there can't be any real testimony that comes that would lead to his crucifixion. So false testimony is drummed up. Caiaphas throws out all the laws of God concerning evidence uh, just to drum up false evidence, false testimony against Jesus. The false testimony comes and, and Jesus refutes none of it. And then Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks very directly to Jesus. And he simply asks them this, Are you the Christ the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus says, essentially, yes, I am. He speaks finally. He would never defend himself against all these false accusations, but if you want to say something true, he'll affirm it. And so he says, I am. And then he goes on to say this. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then Caiaphas, in what must have been, historically speaking, the greatest acts of hypocrisy ever tore his robes as if he were offended at one who would offend God. Because what Caiaphas was really worried about was himself, not the people, not the honor of God. But in a great show of piety, he rips his clothes as if he is so offended at Jesus. But of course, the offense of Jesus was simply telling the truth because Jesus knew himself and he quoted from Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel's seeing this great vision and then he sees this, verse 13 in Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, which is an image of God, the Father. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so what Caiaphas rightly heard Jesus say is that I am to be worshipped as God. I have the authority of God. I have the dominion of God. I'm God in the flesh. Caiaphas hears that and understands if this really is a mere man speaking, that's blasphemy. But of course, it wasn't a mere man speaking. It was the very Son of God. Now, it's interesting that in the midst of this great hypocrisy, Pilate, of all people, saw through it. 
Pilate realized that the only reason that they sent Jesus to him, the only reason that Caiaphas wanted Jesus crucified was out of envy. Isn't that interesting? Pilate saw it because you see, the, the high priests were envious of Jesus. That was really the issue. They wanted the place that Jesus now had. They wanted the place that Jesus now claimed. You see, before Jesus came, these high priests were it. Everything they said was true. Everything they said was to be followed by the people. But then Jesus shows up with way more authority than they ever could muster. And the people noticed it. And they were envious of Jesus' position. Why else would they want to kill Jesus after he raised Lazarus from the dead? What in the world could be wrong with that? He raised a man from the dead. Let's kill him. I mean, they even missed the irony. No one said, how can we do this? He raises the dead. But they were envious of his position. They were envious that the people's heads were now turned towards them. They were envious. And I think, that's really rotten. Until I think of my own life. And I realize that that's really the sin, isn't it? That we're envious of God. We're covetous of his godness. We really want to be the ones who are honored. We really want to be the ones who set the agenda of life. And while we may be humble enough to say, okay, I didn't create all this, but I, I do want autonomy. I do want to be independent. I do want to be the one that gets to define what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And I'm really envious of that in God. I really want to be the one who sets that. I want to be the one to determine what's right to say and what's not right to say. I don't really want to listen to somebody else. I, I want to determine what's really right about sexuality and I don't want to listen to what someone else has to say. I, I want to really determine what's right about my own body. I don't really want to listen to what someone else has to say. I really want to determine what's right about the course of my own life. I really don't want anybody else. It's that envy of the position of God. And that was Caiaphas. And while I want to blame him, and while he's blameworthy, I also think, what would it have been like if I had been the high priest that day? What would I have done? I can look in my own heart and see where I've taken the position of God and defined for myself what is right and followed that. And maybe on that day. And then there's Pilate. Frankly, I don't think there's any more pathetic person in history than Pilate. <laughs> he was just a spineless man. Because at least these others stood for something. All Pilate stood was for was his own ambition. He really didn't care about Jesus. He had come to the right conclusion. He's innocent. There's nothing about him that deserves any punishment at all. But he was too spineless to say that because, you see, if he had said that, he might have offended the Jewish leaders that came and somehow he had to pacify them. And if he had said that, they would tell Caesar that he embraced this one who claimed to be king. And where would that leave Pilate at that point? And so he struggles to try to find some solution that satisfies everybody, lets him keep his job and get a pretty good headline to boot. And there he is. So he says first, he's a Galilean, send him to Herod. Herod sends him back. <sighs> All right, you have this custom. I'll give him to you, it's Passover. They said, no, we want Barabbas. 
says, all right, I'm going to wash my hands. And they say, but you know what? If you say he's innocent, we're going to tell Caesar that you embraced him. And then what's Caesar going to say? And he said, okay, what should I do? And they say, crucify him. He says, wait a minute, I'll just beat him up. I'll rough him up. I'll make it look like we really, really got him bad. Crucify him. And of course, Pilate, the spineless one that he is, gives in because what he's really concerned about, what he's really after is how he looks and his own ambition. And, and as my disdain for Pilate grows, then I, I think, I, I think of me and I, I think, haven't I sold out Christ for my own ambition? At times, isn't that in me too? Don't I have more to relate to Pilate than I want to admit? Don't I realize that there are times when I, I don't say what's really my conviction of heart because I'm afraid what someone else might think of me if I do? What would my boss think? What would my co-worker think? What would my friend think if they really knew how, what I really believed about Jesus? Pilate couldn't admit it. I think we all can look back in our own lives and realize there were times when we couldn't admit it either. And we wonder if we had been Pilate on that day, what would have it been really like? But then there's something else, of course, in, in all of this that we realize. That yes, in a very real sense, they're culpable. In fact, the scripture teaches that, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, as Peter is, writing, is preaching his Pentecost sermon, we read this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There was no question. They did, in fact, crucify Jesus. But it's difficult. It's difficult for me, I think, for us, putting ourselves in their position, understanding ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, too, to really, to really blame them. Because there's something else that we know. And that something else that we know is this that he really hung on that tree because of our sin. If it hadn't been for our sin, if none of us were sinners, if none of us had offended God, we wouldn't need a Savior. And if we wouldn't need a Savior, then we know that, that Jesus wouldn't have had to die. And I look at that tree and I realize that there's a sense in which, a great sense in which, since he hung there because of my sin, I'm responsible for the death of Jesus. But then there's something else. It's interesting to me, and I suspect it's interesting to you if you think about this, that there was Jesus on that night when he was being accused of all these things and he, and he didn't respond at all. But, you know, just the day before and the day before that, he silenced all of his critics. Jesus never had difficulty in debate. Jesus had never had any difficulty defending himself. They came to him and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And he said, let me ask you a question. By what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? Was it from heaven or from earth? And he got him. Because if they said from heaven, Jesus would have said, well, then why didn't you follow him? And if they said earth, then the people would have come against them because the people loved John the Baptist. He silenced them. They came to him and they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He said, give me a coin. Whose head is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. Give it to him. But the real problem is you're not giving to God his glory. You're not giving to God that which is, that upon which is his image. Caesar's head's on this coin. Where's the image of God? 
Oh, it's on you. Are you giving to God his due? They were silenced. And on and on, Jesus silenced them. Isn't it amazing, too, that here's this Jesus who could look right into the teeth of a storm and say, just stop. And yet, he stood there as if defenseless. Don't you get the impression that all Jesus would have had to do is go, and it had been gone? Do you remember in one of the other Gospels when, when, when Jesus was being arrested? They say, are you the one? He says, I am. And the soldiers fell down. Jesus waits for them. Now, if I'm Jesus, I'm on the next donkey out of Jerusalem. <laughs> Peter, according to another gospel, cuts off this guy Malthus' ear. Jesus puts it back on. Do you know how hard that is? <laughs> I've watched the Discovery Channel. I've watched them try to do some of this stuff. You know, a little... He just... It worked. Now, that doesn't sound like somebody who's really afraid of being, of being arrested at that point, does it? And Jesus, you see, had told them for a long time exactly what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. And yet there he was. He stood there in the midst of that. He took a flogging that was the most torturous beating that they knew how to do at that point in time. We've probably gotten better at it now. We could probably beat somebody worse. But at that time, that was the worst kind of beating that anyone could ever receive. And Jesus, the very one who could speak to a storm and say, stop, who could raise the dead, stood there, and he took all of that. Who then is responsible for the very death of Jesus? Isn't it, in some sense, Jesus himself? Because at any moment in time, he could have escaped that scene, but he never did. He never gave an inclination that he would. In fact, we read in the scripture that very same thing. Of Jesus, for instance, in John chapter 10, you heard it while we were singing, but in John chapter 10 and uh, verse uh, 11, Jesus says this, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In verse 17, he says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. Was that ever more clear than when Jesus was standing before his accusers? Was that ever more clear than when Jesus was being flogged? Was that ever more clear than when Jesus was going to the cross because we knew his power, we knew his strength. We knew at any moment in time a legion of angels would come to his rescue. But he said, no one takes my life. I give it voluntarily. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received uh, from my father. We read, of course, in Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse one, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice for God. You see, Jesus himself takes responsibility. Why would he do that? Why would he go to the cross? Why would he suffer all of that? Why wouldn't he try to get out of it? Two reasons. One, he loved the honor of his father. The Lord Jesus loved the honor of his father. And do you understand that when human beings sinned, it dishonored the father and justice had to be done. Do you understand that when Satan lured and tempted human beings to sin and in essence human beings followed then Satan, followed then their own evil ways, do you understand that dishonored the father and Jesus in love for his father contracted with his father and I mean that in the most affectionate of terms 
to come and vindicate his father's glory. And he said, Father, you're worth this. You're worth all of this, that your glory would be manifested, that your glory would be known. And this too, because mysteriously and miraculously, the Lord Jesus loved sinners. He loved his sheep. And thus, he was willing to be responsible for his own death, just as he said. But there's one other side to this too. And that is, it was God himself, it was the Father himself who sent his Son, gave his Son, sent him to the cross. For instance, in Romans in chapter 8, in verse 32, we read this. He, that is the Father, God, he who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, along with him, uh, not give, graciously give us all good things? You see, he gave him up, the Father. He gave up his Son. In fact, the prophet Isaiah speaks of that so clearly. I read this during our call to worship. Let me read it again. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah writes this. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, that is the Messiah, grew up before him. The son grew up before his father. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This very one who had the power, the power over nature, the power over all things, took all of that even to the point of being despised. Verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and our sorrows. That's why he went to the cross, to take up our infirmities. You see our responsibility Yet you see him going and taking responsibility as well. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we have been healed. You see, Jesus voluntarily took that. Knowing it wasn't his sin. Knowing he didn't deserve it, but we. And thus we being responsible for taking him to the cross, he being responsible for going. Verse 6, we, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord, God, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God did it. God took Jesus to the cross. The Father laid upon the Son the iniquity of us all. Then verse 10. Yet, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. That little word, will, in the New American Standard in the King James Version, is translated, pleased. In fact, in other portions of the Scripture, it's translated, delight. Because the sense of the word is this. And please hear this. 
in some mysterious sense, in the complexity of God, it pleased him. He looked forward to, can we say this? He delighted to crush his son. And you say, how could that be pleasing? How could one look forward to that? How could there be any delight in that at all? Well, this first, it's because the father so loved his son. And the father knows that the most, that the greatest thing, the greatest privilege of anyone is to glorify God. And there would be nothing more glorifying than for Jesus to die for his father. And so even in the midst of the pain and even in the midst of all of that, it pleased him to send his son. It pleased him to crush him because it would bring the father such great glory. I don't know if you get that. I don't know if I get that, but it's true. <laughs> but not only that, but this. But it pleased him. He looked forward to it. He delighted even in crushing his son because mysteriously again, God loves sinners and he knew the end result. And he knew the end result of crushing his son, of laying the iniquity of us all upon him would be the salvation of sinners. That Jesus would take the penalty for the sin of sinners and free then his people from their sins so that God could be just and also the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And thus it pleased him to crush him. Now I say all that in hopes of increasing your faith. In hopes of causing you to love God more. I was thinking the other day, I've been thinking about Isaiah chapter 10, this first phrase, that it pleased the Lord to crush him for about 20 years. I regret the first 30 years of my life, therefore, that I wasn't thinking about it. And I urge you now, if you've not thought about this, to take that phrase and to, to tuck it deep, but not so deep that you never think about it, but so thoroughly that you do, that you think about the fact that it pleased the Lord to crush, you, crush him. Why? Because I think your faith in him would increase. Because you will trust him more. Scriptures say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you see the logic of that? He's saying, look, he crushed his son. What makes you think he won't therefore add to you every other good thing? If he'll crush his son, what are you worried about? Won't he give you every good thing? Won't he give you everything that you really do need? Isn't he utterly trustworthy? When he comes and says, follow me, why wouldn't you follow the one who on your behalf for your salvation wouldn't, would crush his son? Your faith increases and your love for him grows. And that, you see, makes all the difference. Because when we come to understand that the one who commands us loves us, it is so much more satisfying and even, I would say, easier to obey.
when Karen and I talk to people about raising children, and we don't do it very often because we don't think we're all that good at it, but we're good at talking about it. Um, We try to explain to parents that one of the key deals, one of the key issues is living in such a way as to convince your children, and this is hard, parents know this, to convince your children that you really do love them and that you really do delight in them. That it pleases you to love them. That loving them is not a chore. That loving them is not a huge sacrifice on your part. You know, dads, don't complain to your children about how hard you work in order... I'm convicting us all here, so just relax. How hard you work so they can waste all your money, all right? Because you want them to understand, and I hope this is true for you, that it's your delight to work that at least they might eat. (laughs) It's your delight to sacrifice, to crush even your own desires and pleasures for them, that that's a delight for you. Now, your children will see some of that by the time they're 30. (laughs) Which I think is when I started thinking that it was the Lord's pleasure to crush him. And you see, when they see that you love them, and when they see then that the one who commands them, and you must, that the one who commands them loves them, hearts begin to soften. And when we see that the one who commands us loves us, then our hearts soften. God demonstrates, the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Now that little phrase, his own love for us is crucial because it says that the kind of love that God has for us is utterly unique. It's God's kind of love. It doesn't come from human beings. It's God's kind of love. His kind of love is demonstrated in this, that while we were yet sinners, he crushed his son. That's God's kind of love. He loves us unconditionally in the sense that it's not conditioned on what we have done or who we are. That's why our love for God is different than his love for us. Our love for him is, his love for us is unconditional. But our love for him is justly conditional. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and crushed his son. We love him because he's utterly lovable. When we get it, when we understand that he is lovable because we've experienced his great love. And then when we get the fact that the one who commands us loves us, following comes from a softening, softening, softening heart. It was. Can I say this reference? It was the Lord's pleasure in a way that I can't, as a father, even comprehend. 
It was the Lord's delight to crush him and to lay upon him our iniquities. That thought will soften your heart by the power of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for me and for us that the image of what Jesus went through on our behalf never leaves our consciousness. That we do understand that while there were these people who led Jesus to the cross, had a responsibility, you can blame them, but we can't. Because we're just like them. Because we understand that it was our sin that's responsible for Jesus being on the cross, but miraculously, in ways we pray you help us understand, he took responsibility to go because he loves you and he loves us. And you are responsible to send him, to crush him, to lay our iniquities on him. I pray, God, that you enable us to grasp that so that our faith grows and our love for you expands. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind uh, the college students, lunch coming up a few minutes, so make your way to room three and we'll meet you there uh, for lunch. I remind us all that uh, our family meeting is this Wednesday, so please come and remind everyone for a great blessing this weekend to come as uh, Jerry Bridges comes Friday night, Saturday morning for that time as well, so please be in attendance. The response to the benediction is praise be to God, amen. If you're getting it, then that will make sense to say. Please receive this as God's benediction. May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. And may he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forever.